Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Robert Shore, a senior at the University of Miami and a member of the AEI Executive Council program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation that I moderated with AEI's Dr. Zach Cooper on how U.S.-China relations will shape the world in the coming decades. Before getting started, I want to let you know that the AEI Executive Council program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one, and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on campus. If you want to get involved or learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Campus Exchange and give us a rating to help others find the podcast. With that, here's my conversation with Zach Cooper. Good evening, and welcome to a conversation with AEI's Dr. Zach Cooper titled A New Cold War, How U.S.-China Relations Will Shape the World in the Coming Decades. My name is Robert Shore. I'm a senior at the University of Miami and also the leading member of UM's American Enterprise Institute Executive Council. Dr. Cooper is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies U.S. strategy in Asia and U.S.-China competition. Before joining AEI, Dr. Cooper was the senior fellow for Asian security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a research fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He also spent time working in the National Security Council and in the Department of Defense. Dr. Cooper has been published in several academic journals and is the co-editor of two books on security and foreign policy in Asia. Dr. Cooper holds a PhD and MA in Security Studies and an MPA in International Relations, all from Princeton, and he received his Bachelor's in Public Policy from Stanford. With that being said, let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Zach Cooper. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be here. Really, really happy to get a chance to chat with you and with everyone else down there at UM. So, Dr. Cooper, could you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be interested in studying U.S.-China relations? Of course. And as you'll hear, the most important thing about me is that I have two little kids who are going to weigh in right upstairs. So I'll apologize if they're a little bit distracting. But I think the important thing, just for all of you to understand my perspective on U.S.-China issues, is that most people that study Asia start out as sort of Asian studies majors, right? A lot of people either have Asian heritage or have gotten a chance to live somewhere in Asia or maybe go abroad in college or study in Asia or work in Asia afterwards. I actually sort of came the opposite direction. So when I started my career, I worked a couple years in government, in the Pentagon, and then a bit in the White House. And it became very clear from that experience that the hardest issue facing U.S. national security experts was going to be China. And that was back around 2000, 2005. And so even though I'd sort of started out as a defense planner, so in the office that tries to come up with the war plans that inform U.S. defense strategy, at the time, I really wasn't an Asia expert at all. I'm not even sure I went to Asia until a couple of years after that. But I became very convinced that the most interesting problem for the United States on the national security side was going to be how to handle China. And as a defense expert, it's, it's also the hardest problem, right? There, there are some defense problems that you can solve just by spending more money. 
Iran, North Korea as a defense issue, those are simple. They may be tough foreign policy issues, but if you need to accomplish certain objectives with military force, we can tell you how to do that with the force the United States has. Russia is a trickier issue, but the really tough one is China. China forces you to make some very difficult trade-offs and difficult decisions. And so when I was a young civil servant working in the Defense Department, it just became very clear to me that of all the tough issues that we were looking at, China was by far the most interesting. And really, most of my work hasn't focused on China in particular. It's focused on the countries that the U.S. works with in Asia to manage the China challenge. And the reason I focus there is because I, I think those are countries that, frankly, are often overlooked. There are a huge number of people in Washington, D.C. who are China scholars, and not just in Washington, but out in, in the rest of the United States and around the world. But if you go and you try and figure out in the United States, for example, how many people have spent any real time in Australia and know anything about the Australian strategic situation, the number is a handful, right? And you could say the same thing on Vietnam, the Philippines. There are a couple more on Taiwan, on India, on Japan and Korea, but the numbers are really small. And so when I looked at the field, I thought, China is the hardest challenge. That's where I want to focus my interests. And that I thought the real space where we needed more expertise was in the ally and partner relationships in the region. So that's most of what I focus on. For our listeners who might not be as well-versed on modern Chinese history, could you give us a brief crash course on the Chinese Communist Party from 1949 to today and elaborate on how China watchers or East Asia scholars such as yourself view the current leadership under Xi Jinping? Absolutely. And I would say we're sort of in the third stage of U.S.-China relations. So the first stage was from 1949 to 1972, let's say, when, remember, the United States actually had a treaty alliance with the Republic of China for most of that time. The Republic of China was in Taiwan from 1949 on, right? So the People's Republic of China, which is what we now know of as, as China, based in Beijing, was really an opponent of the United States. And not just an opponent in Korea, but also an opponent to some extent in Vietnam. And then most importantly, for a lot of Americans, you know, there were real discussions in the early 1950s of whether the United States should use nuclear weapons against China. So the US-China relationship was terrible up until, let's say, 1971. And some dynamics had been emerging in the late 60s in particular that led to an opening for the United States. So the Soviet Union had, frankly, pushed the Chinese too far in the middle and, and late 1960s and opened up some space for the United States to try and split China off from the rest of a lot of the Soviet-aligned countries, right? And this was a big opportunity, right? China, the biggest communist country in the world, having a major border dispute, not just a dispute, but a, a real fighting on the border with, with the Soviet Union opened up this opportunity that Nixon grabbed to go to China and shift the relationship. The cost was the United States basically giving up its alliance with the Republic of China. And that was costly. And so over the course of the 1970s, basically from 1972 to the end of 1979, the US unwound its alliance with the Republic of China and basically made a relationship with the People's Republic of China, Communist China. And from that period, about 1979 to, let's say, 2017 or 2018, the relationship tended to be not perfect, but 
not terrible. There were some definite problems, you know, think about Tiananmen Square, but they were issues that were managed by both sides for the most part. But it became clear maybe a decade ago that actually US-China relations were, were going downhill and fairly quickly. The Obama team, in my view, was a little slow to recognize some of those changes, especially in the second term. And the Trump team came in with a view that they were going to shift things. So, you know, from 1949 to 1972, there was sort of the first period from, let's say, 72 to maybe 2017, there was the second period of engagement. And now I think we're in a period of of competition, exactly what that competition will look like. I think, frankly, we don't yet know. But it's clear that the last four years or so of the US-China relationship look nothing like the previous 40. So I'm doing great violence to the history, but I think that's, that's the general trend as I see it. And then the question for all of us is, is where does this go from here? So it's, it's no secret that in 2016, President Trump, Trump shifted the US toward a more hawkish China policy, especially with regards to trade. But could you explain to our listeners, what was the economic driving force that initiated this pushback to trade with China? Yeah, there were a lot of reasons that the Trump administration got very frustrated with China. And they didn't just start in the Trump administration, right? So at the end of the Obama administration, the Obama team decided that they just had to push back much more firmly against Chinese intellectual property theft in particular. And so there was a real effort to force Beijing to come to the table and to, if not stop the intellectual property theft, at least to acknowledge that it had been going on and to take some steps to decrease it. And there are good reasons for this. We don't have perfect numbers, but it's something like $250 billion a year in American national product that's lost to China each year because of intellectual property theft. So this is a massive loss. And I think it was wise for the US to finally do something about it. The other element of this that the Trump administration added was the president's own frustration about what he saw as China, in his words, stealing American jobs. And the idea was that the United States had entered into an agreement with China for China to enter the World Trade Organization. And that under that agreement, China was supposed to liberalize maybe politically, but definitely economically, that it was supposed to decrease the role of the state in its economy. It was supposed to stop these massive subsidies that China gives to a lot of its state-owned enterprises and private companies, change its currency and financial markets a bit, some of which has happened, and that all of this would, over time, decrease the imbalance in US-China trade. But actually, it increased it. And so part of the problem that the Trump administration saw was something that was much more focused on workers than on intellectual property, which was the loss of jobs, American jobs that have gone overseas. We can have a long debate over whether that was the correct diagnosis and whether the problem with lost American jobs was was Chinese action. But there's a broad consensus in Washington that on a variety of issues, Currency manipulation, at least up until a couple of years ago, state subsidies to major Chinese companies, limitations on market access and on intellectual property, that China was engaging in unfair economic behavior and that there had to be some pushback. And as I said, the Obama team tried some targeted pushbacks that it looks like didn't really work. And the Trump team came in and said, okay, we're going to try something different. 
if the previous teams tried to use incentives and some targeted pressure, we're going to use massive blunt pressure to force the Chinese to the table. That's how we ended up in a world with 10% tariffs and then 15% tariffs and then 25% tariffs on a lot of goods and services flowing from China into the United States. And the Chinese, of course, put their own tariffs on and we ended up in, in a bit of a trade war. There was a small amount of progress made just about a year ago, right? The US and China made a phase one trade deal. We can get into this more, but my view is the Chinese made a lot of promises. I'm not sure that we asked them to promise the things that we really should have. And I'm not sure the Chinese followed through on the promises they made anyways. So where we stand right now is, is an impasse. The Biden team has these tariffs on from the Trump administration. They haven't taken them off yet. What they clearly intend to do is to use that as leverage to try and force China's hand a bit on some of these trade issues. I don't know whether they'll be successful, but that's, that's going to be a big component of their approach in the next couple of years. Yeah, that, that phase one deal, from what I understand, got the low-hanging fruit, whereas the more difficult things are still on the table to be negotiated. But the, the friction between the US and China, however, it, it extends beyond just trade practices. And some scholars suggest that China has begun trying to reinvent the world order, both through existing international institutions, so United Nations, World Health Organization, etc., but also through entirely new efforts like the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you take us through the various ways that China has been trying to increase its influence on the international stage? Yeah, so there was a view a decade ago or so that actually China wasn't ready for global leadership. And, and not just that it wasn't ready, but that it didn't want to take on global leadership. That view is gone. And in fact, you've heard Xi Jinping talk very specifically about China needing to take on more of an active global role. And China has done that, right? It's done this massive Belt and Road Initiative which has huge promises. You know, some of the numbers are something like $2 trillion in promised investments. You know, the reality has been there's been a lot less money flowing than that, but it's been a big effort globally. And then deep engagement by China at the United Nations, at the World Health Organization, of course, as we've seen over the last year, but then also in some areas where maybe we don't pay a lot of attention, like in standard setting bodies. These standard setting bodies are really important. They do things like arrange the protocols that phones are going to use right when they connect to the internet and they arrange how 5G networks are going to work right and a lot of this activity hasn't been about the chinese government necessarily engaging but chinese companies and in many ways in many of these standard setting bodies china is now the dominant player because they have so many people that will come to the table and often it's not one country one vote it's one representative or one person from a company, one vote. And so if the Chinese bring a lot of people to these meetings, they have a lot of power. And so that has really shifted the dynamic globally on, on the world order. China, as, as Xi Jinping has said, is trying to return to the center stage, right? Or, or closer to the center stage, as she has, has insisted. And that's a huge change. This is not the China that you know, as I said, I started looking at 2005, 2006, that frankly was a bit shy on the global stage. And we could talk about why China changed. I have some views on this, but I think a lot of it dates back to 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis, when it looked like the United States and Europe were really struggling to handle this. 
and that it took a long time for us to recover. And China saw this as a bit of an opportunity, and it gave Chinese leaders a bit of confidence that actually they had something to add and that they should be a bit more active on the world stage. And they have been. So, so that's, that's the short version. Happy to talk more about, about any of that. But you know, bottom line is the China we're seeing today globally is very different than the China we saw five or 10 years ago. So taking a step back from global leadership, although I guess it's still a component of Chinese foreign policy, if we look at how China fits into the East Asian and the South Asian regions, recently it appears that China and its neighbors are finding themselves increasingly at odds with each other. So for example, you've got border disputes with India and Nepal, competing territorial claims in the South China Sea with actually a number of countries, the new law allowing the Chinese Coast Guard to fire on ships that it believes are in Chinese waters. How does China view its neighbors and how do its neighbors view China? And should we expect to see improving or worsening relations between China and its neighbors in the years ahead? Really good question. My view on this is clear. I think China's relationships with its neighbors are largely going to get worse. And I think that's been borne out over the last decade. So if you go back to, let's say, 2010, that's the start of when China became a bit more assertive with its region. You have a fishing dispute with Japan over the East China Sea, where Japan and China dispute the Senkaku Diayu Islands. You know, and then if you just go around the region, there's really n- almost none of China's major neighbors that don't have some kind of pretty significant dispute, right? So South Korea and China actually do have a bit of a dispute over claims, and they share an air defense identification zone that overlaps. North Korea and China have all kinds of issues, even though theoretically they're supposed to be aligned. But if you ask any North Korean whether they have any trust in Beijing, the answer is always no. Taiwan obviously has a longstanding issue with mainland China. And then if you keep going to the south and then to the west, in the South China Sea, Vietnam has been remarkably steadfast in pushing back against Beijing in the last decade. The Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei all have territorial disputes, maritime disputes in the South China Sea. They haven't pushed back quite as hard, but they're certainly not comfortable with much greater Chinese influence and activity in the South China Sea. And then even Indonesia, which doesn't have a dispute with China or shouldn't, has been sort of drawn into this mess. And then, of course, you could talk about issues on on the Chinese border with the lower Mekong, where China has built a large number of dams and caused real problems in mainland Southeast Asia. But the other place that's gotten a lot of attention recently is India, right? The Sino-Indian border, where we've seen fighting over the last year. We have a bit of a ceasefire at the moment, but I think the reality is what we're seeing is, is kind of a natural reaction, right? International relations theorists, we tend to believe that countries balance against threats, and China has a remarkable amount of power. And so its neighbors are going to be worried. And unless China shows real restraint, those neighbors are increasingly going to view China as having offensive capabilities and intentions. And and that's exactly what we've seen. So this is a lot of bad news, I realize. I don't think these relationships are going to get better anytime soon. But there's an opportunity here for the United States, which is you know, if you go back 20 years, I can't imagine that a lot of Americans would have said that Vietnam would be a pretty close US partner in Asia. It is, right? And has been driven there by these dynamics. India, 
which people constantly are hoping is going to work more with the United States, again, is being driven a bit towards us by these dynamics, to say nothing about countries like Japan or even Australia, which increasingly see the, their alliances with the United States is, is absolutely critical. So I think China's increasingly assertive behavior, although people in Beijing might be happy to see it, it's driving away the countries that matter in Asia, and it's really undermining China's own hand. To piggyback off of, off of that, actually, as we talk about the region, but we have a question here on Taiwan. And Taiwan is an especially touchy subject for Chinese leaders and has become a hot topic given Taiwan's successful handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, despite Taiwan being blocked out of the World Health Organization. Furthermore, Chinese warplanes have repeatedly flown into Taiwanese airspace in the last year, elevating the risk of war. Why is Taiwan such a sensitive issue for Beijing? And how does Taiwan potentially affect the U.S.-China relationship moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question. And increasingly, I think Taiwan is the hardest problem for the United States. And in some ways, it's the hardest problem for China as well. And when I say that Taiwan is a problem, I don't really mean that Taiwan, the people of Taiwan are the problem. In fact, the problem is the policies of mainland China. So if you remember back to some of the history we were discussing at the outset, right, in 1949, the nationalists in China basically flee to Taiwan at the time, Formosa, to the island, right? And so for mainland China, the Communist Party, they see Taiwan as this breakaway republic that they want to regain hold over. Increasingly, the people of Taiwan don't think of themselves as Chinese, though. They think of themselves as Taiwanese. And this is a real problem for China. The problem is that Beijing has always thought that over time, they could convince the people on Taiwan to unify with the mainland, or as the mainland Chinese would say, to reunify. But the reality is that if you look at polling data, people on Taiwan don't see themselves as unifying with China because they think China is actually sort of a different culture and a different society. And it certainly has a different governing system. And if you've watched the last two years to what's happening in Hong Kong, you'll note it doesn't look like a good deal for people in Taiwan to say, oh, we'll, we'll join the mainland and be one greater China, but somehow we'll still have our rights be respected, right? That was, in fact, the deal that in 1997 was promised to Hong Kong, right? That Hong Kong and China were going to unify, there were going to be two different systems, and that China was going to allow Hong Kong to flourish with a different system. And what we've seen the last two years is that that's not true. In fact, criticism of the government by people in Hong Kong is seen as a direct threat to the Communist Party. And that has made for quite a clear signal to the people on Taiwan that unifying with the mainland would effectively mean giving up a lot of their rights. And so polls have consistently shown that that's just not something that is going to happen politically. And that was always the hope that China had, that somehow politically people on Taiwan would say, oh, let's join with the mainland. So now China and Xi Jinping in particular are in a really hard spot. It doesn't look like Taiwan's going the direction they want. And the only other option they really have to force Taiwan to join with the mainland 
is a military campaign. And a military campaign that they would have to launch over a fairly large body of water against an island of 24 million people, a mountainous island with people who've been preparing for this invasion for decades. And oh, by the way, potentially alongside the world's greatest military power and its set of allies in Asia. That's not a great prospect for China. And the real danger I think that we're heading towards is a world in which Xi Jinping potentially feels that he has to take some risk and even risk an invasion or a blockade or a missile campaign or maybe seizing some of Taiwan's outlying islands as a way to try and coerce or force Taiwan to join with the mainland. 10 years ago, most people would have said that wasn't a real likely prospect, at least not in the near term. Now there's a very active debate about this in Washington. And unfortunately, I think this is probably the, the one flashpoint that has a real possibility of conflict. I'm not saying that I think it's likely. I, I don't. I think it's fairly unlikely, especially in the near term, but it's not impossible. And so this is the issue that we really have to watch. And, and frankly, that I think we're going to have to live with over the next couple of decades and try and manage very, very aggressively. If we don't pay attention to this, it could absolutely spur a major conflict. So there's, there's a question in the chat box about Hong Kong that we're going to put in our pocket briefly because there's another question in the chat box that I want to tie in to that same subject, still, still talking about Taiwan, because you recently published, I believe it was recently published a chapter in a report on in the event of conflict between China and Taiwan and the US gets involved, would America's allies in the region come to our assistance? And so we have a, we have a question in the chat box. How does Japan's economic integration with China complicate the U.S.-Japan alliance and, by extension, Japanese security, especially given that Japan's relations with South Korea are near all-time lows? And also, if you could tie that in kind of to that chapter that you published on, you know, in the event of, of an East Asian conflict, would South Korea, would Japan, would the Philippines, you know, who are treaty-bound to, to fight with us, actually do so? It's a really good question. First, it's a fantastic question in part because it's a major change from the Cold War. And it's why when we, when we talk about whether this is a new Cold War, you'll see that I'm going to be skeptical. In the Cold War, most American allies had very limited economic engagement with the Soviet Union or even the Warsaw Pact. That's not the case today, right? And if you look at the numbers in Asia, almost every single country in Asia, their number one trading partner far and away is China. Now, a lot of them, their number one investment partner is the United States. But that trade relationship gives China a lot of leverage. It does go both ways, of course, right? And each economy is a little bit different. So for example, the Australian economy is probably the one that is in some ways the most dependent on China, but where the Chinese have the least leverage. Because what is it that China buys from Australia? Well, a lot of it's iron ore. Iron ore that China needs to keep growing and building. And coal, which China needs for energy. If, if you've watched any of the news recently, it doesn't get a lot of play, but there's actually been a real struggle in China this year, a heating problem, because China cut back on coal purchases from Australia. So there's some economies that, that China is dependent on, and then there are others that are more dependent on either the Chinese market or Chinese goods, and Japan certainly falls into that latter category. But the bottom line is, China needs Japan too. And, and the Japanese know this, and it gives them some leverage as well. 
So what we've seen in the region over the last couple of years is a real desire, as you'll constantly hear Asian friends say, not to force them to choose, right? They want to have this good economic relationship with China, and they want to have a good economic relationship with the United States, and they also want to have a good security relationship with the United States. Part of the challenge for the Trump administration was that very often countries felt like they were being forced to make a choice. The Trump team would say that wasn't the case. But if you look at polling data, countries in Southeast Asia in particular felt forced to make a choice between the US and China that they didn't want to make. If there was a conflict with China, most countries in Asia, I think, would stay on the sidelines, including a lot of US allies. So the US has five treaty allies in Asia, Japan, Korea, Australia, Thailand, Philippines. I would say not clear what the Philippines would do, especially under its current leadership. Pretty clear that Thailand wouldn't want to be very actively involved at all on either side. And then you've got some questions about Korea, Japan, and Australia. I think of those three, Japan is the most likely to fight alongside the United States, in part because it's possible, maybe even probable, that China would attack Japanese bases or American bases in Japan at the outset of a conflict. But Australia and South Korea, those are much more difficult, difficult choices and decisions. And I don't think anyone really knows where they would end up. And unfortunately, we actually haven't had enough discussion in those alliances about these issues, about what they would do in a contingency. We've sort of tried to be pretty ambiguous about this. And I think we're now reaching the point where we have to have some open conversations, not just with government leaders in those countries, but with the publics as well, so that we understand where they are going to be if there's a contingency, and that we're not surprised and they're not surprised of our expectations of them. So pulling the Hong Kong question back out of the pocket, Emery asks, how do the recent events in Hong Kong impact the United States' current standing on the subject of China? So my view on this is they've done tremendous damage. I think the two issues that have done the most damage to China are Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And frankly, with good reason, right? The repression in Hong Kong is terrible. It's easier for us to see because you still have a little bit of a free press left in Hong Kong, although I don't know how much longer we'll be able to say that. In Xinjiang, what's happening is much worse, but it's much less visible. Those two issues, though, have created huge problems for China. And frankly, Beijing has managed them terribly. Now, they've managed them terribly because they shouldn't have engaged in genocide and repression in the first place. But let's put that aside. Right? The messaging has been terrible. The messaging often on these issues is, as the Chinese government actually said a few days ago, oh, you know, other countries also do genocides. Why do you just blame us for our genocide, effectively, is what the foreign ministry tweeted out a few days ago. This is not the right message. And it's been about the only thing that unites most countries in the world against China. This economic relationship we were just talking about is really attractive to countries. But if you go to Europe and you say, are you sure you want to you know, have much deeper engagement with a country that's engaged in holding something like a million Uyghurs in, in detention camps? You're not going to get a lot of yeses. So it's not that Chinese rhetoric hasn't been good on this. It's that the Chinese actions are a problem and there's no way for the rhetoric to cover it up. And if you look at the, the data on American public views, the views have gone downhill very fast on China 
And that is pretty closely correlated to when news spread about what was going on in Xinjiang and when the crackdown in Hong Kong started in 2019. So bottom line is they've done real damage and the Biden team, they're going to make this a big issue. So I obviously work at AI, but try and do a lot of bipartisan work. And I have worked really closely the last few years with the China lead at the White House now for, for the Biden team. And the thing that we've written most about the last few years is the need for the United States and its allies and partners to focus more on our values in the competition with China. And China has made this so easy for us, right? Values are what unite the US and Europe on China and the US and its Asian allies on China. Everyone that we work with just about can agree that what's going on in Hong Kong and Xinjiang is wrong. And so my view is that has to be something that we really foot stomp in our global relationships. So just briefly to answer a question that came up in response to that, there, there doesn't seem to be any consequence to the suppression and, and concentration camps. Does that give China the upper hand? What, what could the US and its allies do? Just to touch that briefly. So to be provocative, nothing. So I would argue there is nothing that we are going to do that will actually stop China from its activities in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. You could probably say the same thing in Tibet and, and elsewhere more broadly in China. The Communist Party has made a decision that regardless of the costs, these crackdowns are worth it. And we're not going to change that decision. So then you might ask, well, what's the point of, of putting sanctions on Chinese officials, right? What's the point of stopping the purchase of cotton from Xinjiang? I think it's two things. One is to ensure that those actors who are involved in this behavior pay some kind of price, even if it doesn't change their behavior, right? So the chief of executive of Hong Kong named Carrie Lam, she can't even do banking in Hong Kong in Chinese banks. She's literally getting paid in cash because no bank will transact with her because we have put sanctions on her. Is that going to stop the repression in Hong Kong? No. But at least it makes clear that we think this is unacceptable behavior. The other thing it does is it helps rally an international coalition against these activities and against, frankly, China. And I think increasingly, if China is going to go down this path, that is important. But we should be very clear and, and open about our objectives here. Yes, we would love to stop the repression in Hong Kong. And yes, the genocide in Xinjiang is unbearable, but our actions are not going to change the Chinese Communist Party's actions in either of those two locations. They might modify it slightly, but you know the kind of things we would need to do, large-scale military operations, are off the table in part because, frankly, these areas are inside China, right? Even if we wanted to carry out some major operation, it probably wouldn't be possible, and we definitely don't have the risk acceptance on the American side to do those kinds of things. Moving on to our next question in the chat, why did the U.S. close the Chinese consulate in Houston? And also, to what extent does the Chinese government try to undermine Western democracies? Yeah, so the consulate closure is a really tough issue. As some of you may remember, the U.S. consulate was, sorry, a U.S. consulate was also closed in response. But this all sort of started because Chinese intelligence operatives have been carrying out intelligence activities from these consulates, right? And let's be very honest, this kind of activity happens with all kinds of countries globally. So this is not something that only China does. The difference, though, is 
we, we have a global agreement on most countries about what kind of activity is acceptable and what is not. And one of the areas that's not acceptable is economic theft by government sources, right? We, we do not do that. So when the United States collects intelligence, it collects intelligence about government actions. It does not collect intelligence on economic behavior, say on patents and trade activity, and then pass that back to American companies. And a lot of the activity that reportedly was going on at the consulate in Houston was helping to tie intelligence sources to economic theft. And the Trump team wanted to find some way to punish that activity. Now, we could all have a debate about whether what they did was effective. I, I have my own views. I'm, I'm not so sure that it was, but clearly made the Chinese sit up and take notice. And so I think for them, it was more of a, of a message that this wasn't acceptable behavior and that there were going to be some costs paid for it. I think that was the logic. The reality, though, is this is not just about one consulate, right? You don't steal $250 billion a year by having a small consulate in Houston do a bit of outreach. This is a much broader government effort. And we've got to go after the, the core of that effort, much of which is conducted not in person, but through cyber means. And until we do that, we're not going to really deal with the intellectual property theft challenge. So we're, we're running a bit short on time. And so to kind of transition to the last idea here, which we actually got a sneak peek of, of what your answer will likely be a little earlier in the conversation, but the title of this talk is A New Cold War with a Question Mark. So in the Cold War, we essentially saw much of the world divided between US and Soviet-led blocs. Today, with regards to China, the Biden administration has voiced its desire to work multilaterally with allies to oppose Chinese aggression and revisionism. But do you see the current landscape as the start of a Cold War 2.0? And if so, on what fronts do you expect to see the competition take place? Perhaps an expanded quad, maybe more jockeying for power within the United Nations. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. And I'm going to give you the short version because I'm teaching classes on this where we spend 14 weeks basically focused on this one issue. My view is that we fall back on the Cold War as an analogy because it is the last time that the US faced a peer threat, right? And that's natural. That is how leaders work. There's some great books about this that you should all read if you're interested, including one called Analogies at War and then another called Thinking in Time that talk about why people and leaders use analogies when they talk about other foreign policy issues. That's fine as long as the analogies are apt. In my view, there are some real flaws in trying to compare either the United States today and the United States in, say, 1947 or China today and the Soviet Union in 1947. And let's just start with a couple of the big ones. As I said earlier, China is deeply integrated into the global economic and financial system. That was not the case with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had a different system. It was actually Marxist, right? And although the Communist Party technically is the Communist Party and technically talks about Marxism-Leninism, it got rid of the Marxism part and it's kept the Leninism part, the Leninism being the one-party system. But it is a capitalist Leninist system with a bit of pretty active state control. That is very different, right? So these economic relationships that China has are really different than the Soviet Union. 
And as a result, China also has a bit better chance of competing technologically, which the Soviet Union could never do, right? On defense technology, the Soviets kept up for a bit, but on commercial technology, they were way behind and they could never catch up. And in fact, every year they were getting further and further behind. That may or may not be the case with China. So number one, the economic relationship is completely different. Number two, the ideology of the Soviet Union was global, right? Global communism, overthrow of the capitalist system. That's not true with the Communist Party of China because the Communist Party of China isn't actually really communist, right? They believe in capitalism. That's what got the Communist Party to stay in power and to have as much power as they have today. So they don't believe in our version of capitalism, but they also don't believe in a global overthrow of the existing system. Yes, they want modifications, but those modifications are very different than sort of the, the communist threat that we faced throughout, the, especially the early and middle of the Cold War. And then, of course, you know, you've got all the other challenges of comparing two very different countries, whether it's geography or different population sizes or different culture. So the comparison of the Cold War is right in the sense that, yes, that was the last time that the US faced a pure competitor, but most of the details are different. And so I think we have to accept that when we talk about China, we're not going to be going back into a Cold War. And I've done a lot of work with a colleague at AI named Hal Brands, who's a historian. He's written a great book on, on the Cold War and the lessons to learn from it. One of them is, and this is where I'll stop, that in the Cold War, we had an American bloc and a Soviet bloc, right? The NATO Warsaw Pact, effectively. That's not what's going to happen now. There's not going to be an alliance of democracies that's going to push back against China. We're going to have a lot of different smaller coalitions where countries come together on an issue, security or another issue, economics or technology or governance issues for a little bit of time to push back against China. And then at other times, they'll work with the Chinese. And so we're not going to have these two clear blocks the way we had in the Cold War. It's going to be a much more fluid, much more challenging situation, especially for policymakers. So bottom line is, I don't like the new Cold War language. I think it's useful for making people understand that this is a real challenge, that Americans are going to have to dedicate real effort to prevailing. But how we prevail is going to be completely different than it was in the Cold War. So it's important that we learn the right lessons from the Cold War and not make the wrong analogies and comparisons. Well, my apologies to the questions in the chat that we do not have the time to get to. I wish we could stay here all night, but unfortunately we can't. Um, so thank you so much, though, for all of you for tuning in and for your questions. And a very special thanks to, to Dr. Zach Cooper for sharing his insights with us today. And for those of you interested in becoming a part of the AEI Executive Council program, just search AEI Executive Council program online to learn more and apply. Thank you all again and have a great rest of your evening. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or check out the link in the show notes. Please make sure to follow us at AEI4Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students.